Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. You know, writing a fanzine, there was no kind of competitiveness. Oh, I don't want them to sell more than me. It was, we all wanted everyone to do well. And I think being coming from that community was sort of probably really inspiring for everyone in all sorts of different ways, like gave them the confidence to move on to whatever they were doing, whether it was a band, whether it was running a label, whether it was wanting to be a manager, because I just think to have that little injection of belief and confidence at that age is actually really important. You know, when at school they don't understand you, they're bullying you, when your parents are involved in something completely different and have no idea what you're talking about. To have that sort of support at that age, I think, is, you know, absolutely key to going on achieving other things. It's the Fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a Fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite, quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was that is a fanzine, right? Welcome one and all to what I could at a pinch call the debut episode of the fanzine podcast, because here on episode fifteen, I've finally gone and changed the name. We are no longer and have not been since episode or what I'm tempted to call issue eleven of this podcast being the jamming podcast. It's no longer been about my old fanzine. And it's been since its relaunch and for these last five episodes, it's been about fanzines in general, a podcast where, as the tagline goes, we talk zines. And we'll change the logo in time as well. May even have changed by the point that you actually listen to this. Shouldn't affect where the show shows up in your feed. The voice that you heard at the beginning there on what some people call the cold open uh, belongs to Mickey Berenyi, described as awesome in a website that catalogues and um, reproduces parts of her old fanzine from the 1980s called Alphabet Soup. Mickey ran that with her bestie at the time, whose name was Emma Anderson, whose name still is Emma Anderson. And you may recognize those names and indeed possibly even that voice you heard because the two of them went on to form the band Lush. And before they did Lush, however, they did a fanzine together. And that's what we're going to be discussing with Mickey. But I'm really glad to say Mickey is not alone on this episode. She is joined by Claire Wood. Claire should be well known for, but but uh, is not really individually, but her record label is well known. She uh, went on to do a record label called Sarah Records, highly influential in the 1980s and beyond, uh, with bands like The Telescopes, Field, My St. Christopher, too many to mention right here. But before she did the label, she did a fanzine called Kavach. She is very clear in the conversation we have here that the label grew out of the fanzine culture. Indeed, she met her label partner, Matt, through 
both of them doing their own fanzines and Sarah Records actually even made a point of occasionally uh, putting out a release that was not a record but a fanzine and I would definitely argue that it's those Sarah Records fanzines particularly of Claire's where her personality really really comes across and you know fanzines are always a reflection of the editor publisher's personality the term perzine has been getting thrown around the last few years but all fanzines are perzines. Sniffing Glue was Mark Perry's personality. Ripped and Torn, Tony D's jamming was certainly my personality until eventually I you know, kind of, it wasn't because I had too many contributors and editors. And that's when people suggested I packed it in. So I really um, appreciate the definition you get over the theme music. It's my old schoolmate, Richard Hurd, who just showed up actually not only on episode one of this whole podcast thing, but on my other podcast, One Step Beyond, talking about a music tour he took of the States. And for everything that Richard nails there about what defines a fanzine, I think it's also the fact that it's editors, publishers, personality. In the case of Emma and uh, uh in the case of yeah, Emma and Mickey, when they were teenage girls and best friends, it was a shared personality, and that will come across in this interview as well. Uh, Mickey has an amazing book out called Fingers Crossed, How Music Saved Me from Success. As you will hear, it's not really just about being in a band. In fact, it's not about being in a band for the first half of the book. I cannot recommend the book highly enough. I hadn't finished it at the time of this conversation. I have now. It's one of the best music memoirs I've read for a multitude of reasons. I'll try and offer a couple more of them after the conversation that follows. I also want to say that one of the reasons I love doing this with more than one guest, and I'm going to continue to do so in the future, is that it becomes much less an interview and much more of a sort of pub-like conversation without the loud chatter in the background. There were moments during the hour that follows where I was able to literally sit back and let Mickey and Claire just uh, talk to each other and ask each other questions and make observations and it's much the same in the episode that's going to follow this one you'll hear the name James Brown mentioned quite a bit over the next hour uh, James uh, not the godfather of soul in this case but certainly the godfather of Loaded magazine before Loaded before his music journalism career he put out a fanzine that was also important influential his name comes up he is on the next episode of the fanzine podcast along with Mark Hodkinson both of them have books out about their publishing lives uh, both have just gone into the paperback editions so that seemed really nice to get connect them up together and just as it seemed really lovely to connect uh, Mickey and Claire together and um, this runs long it does run over an hour I, uh, Mickey and Claire were happy to stay on the call. We were all having fun. There's very little editing. I didn't think that the show needed it. Um, I took myself out from a couple of tangents. But other than that, it just runs as we talked. So without further ado, I'm going to give you Mickey Berenyi, Claire Wad on the Fanzine Podcast, where we talk zines. Welcome, Claire. Welcome, Mickey. Thank you so much for doing this. I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to, to hosting this particular conversation. Uh, do you want to just say hello? So partly to say hello and we get to the, the sound of each of your voices. Okay. Hello. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm Mickey. Hello. <laughs> and I'm Claire. Hi. 
All right. I, uh, again, lovely to see you. Now, now, people listening to this are probably going to think, all right, so this is a reunion between the three of you. You must all be old, old, old friends, or at least two of you are old friends together. I don't know that any of us have met before. When I suggested that we do this with the two of you, it turned out that I don't believe you know each other. Am I right? In terms of meeting each other? Yeah, you're you're dead right. I wondered if we might meet on Friday night last week, Mickey, because I saw you play. But uh, and oh. uh, David, David or Jessica could have introduced us, but I went and sloped upstairs. So no, we've never met. Um, I wonder. I mean, it probably not knowingly. If I got, if I sat you through, walked you through my very geeky gig list, we'd probably find things that we were both at and might have might have swapped fanzines or something. Unfortunately, all the fanzines that I collected back in the day ended up in a skip because my dad chucked them all out when I moved oh. out. So. <laughs> no, I'm sure we've been in the same place, not least I'm sure I've seen Lush play. But, but uh, yeah, I, I grew up in Yorkshire and tended to collect more northern fanzines than southern ones ah. mostly. So. Well, talk, talking of having been at the same gigs, and yeah, I saw Lush as well, um, primarily in New York City, I think probably only in New York City. But I wrote to you, Mickey, I um, got your email from somebody and I wrote what uh, a relatively, hopefully polite note su suggesting, uh, uh, you know, I never assume that people know exactly what I've done in the past. And partly because I do this other podcast where nobody knows me, which is quite fun. And so I wrote this little note saying, yeah, maybe you remember me. Maybe you remember jamming. Anyway, I want to do, get you on the podcast. And within about 30 minutes, you sent me this email. Do you want to tell me what you sent me? Because it made my day. It was hilarious. It was wonderful. I sent you a photo of um, Brockwell Park in, I think it was 1984, and it was a festival in Brockwell Park. I actually can't remember who played. I was going to look it up, but I didn't see it. But it's the photo, right? There's three people in the foreground, one of whom is Emma, who was in Lush. Another is Melissa, who's, who ended up as a PR, actually, at Savage and Best. And another guy was John Shaw, who I actually was possibly going out with then, um, or, or maybe had already chucked, but whatever. And in the background, <laughs> there's Tony kind of talking to James Brown, who went on to do Loaded. A guy rushing towards them is another bloke called John Haha. Ha. I can't remember his surname. He used to do a fancy called Haha, ha, I'm Dragging. But the funny thing is, is there's Tony, kind of like not actually facing the camera. It's literally just people in the background. And I sent him this and I and I was a bit like, is this you? Because it's always bothered me a bit. Um, and um, and he was like, oh, my God, do, do you actually have like this sort of file of photos that if someone randomly emails you, you kind of access it and totally freak them out, you know? Um, and I did sort of explain that I'd kind of I, I've got lots and lots of photo albums. If I turned my camera around, you'd be able to see it. But um, I had to when I wrote the book. I had to go through all these photos. So it was a bit of a kind of walk down memory lane because it was like, oh, my God, there's James Brown. And I and I also used to wrote, write loads of annotations. So I think the annotation does say something like, I reckon that that's the bloke from Jamming, but um, such and such doesn't agree or something like that. Right. There, there were two giveaways. One, one is the uh, the fake blonde haircut. Uh, the and and the second, the the, the biggest one is my uh, uh, red and black uh, Johnson's 
leather jacket, my sort of Michael Jackson leather jacket that I wore relentlessly until I turned vegetarian, at which I uh, either gave it away or sold it for about a fiver. Um, so thank you so much for that. It kind of did make my day. I know I was like, ah, you know, <laughs> I was able to walk around and Mickey, Mickey from Lush has a, has, a, has a photo of me on hand. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was all, <laughs> anyway, both of you are not uh, known. Um, I mean, very few of us are, are ever really known for our fanzines alone. Uh, you will have received a big introduction already. Claire, you went on to the it uh, truly influential, illustrious, I'm sure I could come up with some other great words, Sarah Records. I just spent the last hour listening to somebody put together a playlist on Spotify of your singles in uh-huh. chronological cool. order. And, oh, and Mick, not all of them, I hope. <laughs> I, I think it's all of them. It says it's all of them. Uh, wow, okay. We'll, we'll get to whether that can include the fanzines or not. And, of course, Mickey, you've already mentioned Blush and uh, your current band, Piroshka. Did I pronounce that right? Yes, you Great. did pronounce it. Um, right. I'm not sure how current they are at the moment because I've started doing some other stuff with what we're now being called the Mickey Brenny Trio because um, – because Mick Conroy, who was playing the bass in Poroshka, has now moved to America, and Justin is quite busy doing um, other stuff as well. So we're just taking a bit of a hiatus, and and so I'm doing something else. I'm always doing something else. It's always... I'm always doing something else. Very distracted. There's an ADD element here. <laughs> uh, so so when Claire saw you last week, that was as the Mickey Bereni trio. It was, yes. The wedding present just asked us. They just said, oh, do you want to do this gig? And I think basically we were doing the music as part of the book thing. Because when I was doing these book talks, they were like, it would be nice if you could do some music. And I'm not the person to sit there with an acoustic guitar on my own, way out of my comfort zone. So we kind of put this trio together to do that and then just got offered these gigs. So now it's going to turn into something else. Um so, yeah, I never have a plan. You know, these things just sort of organically emerge. Right, right. Well, I really enjoyed it, and I think the rest of the crowd did too. So, Oh, thank you. So, yeah, do more. <laughs> so uh, both of you have written a, a little bit about your, your time doing fanzines. Uh, Claire, uh, you wrote a chapter for the book Ripped and Ripped, Torn and Cut pop politics and punk fanzines from 1976. And uh, I, you ended it. There's a bunch there that's really, really cool. And you ended it, and hopefully I've um, got this here, otherwise I'll open up the, uh, open up the book for it. Uh, I probably don't have my notes in order. But basically what you said is not everyone has a book in them, but everyone had a fanzine in them. And I love that. And I guess that's true of both of you, right? And I wanted to just ask, I have a feeling that, Mickey zine came first, but uh, only just. Uh, how did you both get to start a fanzine? It's a familiar story, but uh, what are yours? Um, sure, re- yeah, and obviously Mickey does have a book in her because uh, <laughs> we've because it's out and we've read it. But and uh, it's wonderful. Yeah, no, really enjoyed it. So I started my fanzine in the summer of '84 when I'd just done my O levels. So um, and really just. I'd quite recently discovered music. I've got a big brother and he was never really into music. So I was quite late getting into um, music and then got into alternative and Indian, quite obscure music, kind of on a on a fast trajectory and discovered fanzines and decided I wanted to write one before I'd even seen one. So I was in kind of um, 
medium-sized town, North Yorkshire, not too far from Leeds, but, you know, Leeds was the bright lights in the big city and where I was, there was nothing going on and, you know, not transport to get to gigs and stuff like that. So I wrote off for a bunch of fanzines and used them as a template for how to write one, really, and just kind of copied what I saw and um, originally twisted the arms of a group of friends to join me and no one was really that fussed and everyone kind of dropped out. So I ended up doing on my own and probably did the typical thing of kind of going into school and they said, oh, yeah, you can do it here on the photocopier. Um, we'll just card- charge you cost price. What do you want to do? You know, 20 copies or something. And I was like, oh, no, I want to do at least 500, maybe a thousand. And they were like, whoa, no, you're not doing that here. Um, so off I went. And and um, I got, funny enough, we've already mentioned James Brown, but he was obviously not very far away and needs doing Attack on Zag. So he gave up probably a whole day to sort of show me paste ups and that kind of stuff and um, just really give me some help on how to do it and introduce me to some other people so I think Ruska in Leeds did the printing on the first one for me and then um, selling them at gigs mail order John Peel mentioned it um, and off I went you know bigger circulation for the next one and the next one and the next one and so on so yeah 500 for an initial uh, issue is a really ambitious sweet uh I did print mine at school, and I don't think I'd ever seen a fanzine either. I read about them, likewise, and did one that was a terrible school magazine. I finally printed a couple of pages in that jamming compendium. But uh, we did run them off at school and did that for a little while until I got more ambitious the next summer and decided to do it properly, by which time I had seen proper proper fanzines. you know, there's something else that uh, is in your book that I think will be a great segue into Mickey's uh, backstory here. And uh, you write uh, in that same chapter, uh, uh, and, and I will have mentioned this in the intro, but I don't think we've said yet together that your fancy was called Kavach. Did you, yep. It was, yeah. And you pronounced the K, right? Kavach, is that right? It's what? supposed to be the phonetic spelling of the German for rubbish. You can tell I was doing O-levels. I did O-level <laughs> German, so... Um... Quatch, yes. Quatch, okay, all right. Seemed like a good idea at the time. They all, they all, and also do. that kind of self de- self deprecating thing, I guess, as well. So you know, well, um, talk, talking of going which, on with we're, we're going to get to uh, to Alphabet Soup's cover line in a moment. Talking of self deprecating, but you write um, in this in this chapter towards the is this like at the end of doing Quatch, right before you start Sarah Records, and you say at this point, and I figuring this is about eighty seven. I don't think I'd ever met another female fanzine writer. I remember other girls doing fanzines from ninety-seven on, uh, from 1987 onwards, but nothing before that, though there must have been some, even if very few. So clearly, I guess you'd never seen Alphabet Soup because Mickey and Emma were out there doing Alphabet Soup. And Mickey, I guess, um, judging by what I saw from the first issue, which is a kind of uh, a hilarious what's in and out from 83 from a very personal level that would have been when you started it yeah that sounds about right probably about 16 17 I think we were she might have still been 16 because Emma left the school we were at um after GCSE so anyway it was in that period I mean we only got into writing a fanzine because we were already going to gigs and London was you know, almost the opposite to you, actually. You're saying there was like not really not much going on and you had to travel in. So we were surrounded by it. And there was so many gigs in London at the time on so many different kind of levels, you know, whether you wanted to go mm. and see a pop band at 
the Hammersmith Odeon or whether you want it to go to some grimy pub in Hammersmith or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So, and I think we sort of didn't have like, none of us actually had older siblings who were kind of, you know, with us and therefore we didn't really have that, you know, our sort of ladder into music was to start in on the total pop thing and go and see like Haircut 100 or Poultry Club or something and then sort of realise that there's all these other bands that exist, you know, below that on several different strata, whether that was just through, I mean, literally just going to the, ticket counter at our price and seeing oh what are all these bands and then but also you know music papers and stuff and I think when we ended up at, at these gigs the fanzines were just everywhere I mean you literally leave with just an armful and because um you know London had all the tribes so you would get like psychobilly gigs and you had like anaco punk gigs and you had kind of indie student-y gigs and all of these different kind of, you know, goth gigs, blah, blah, blah. So all of these different gigs would sell different types of fanzines, <laughs> you know. So you'd see a sort of pattern emerging. I remember there was actually one fanzine I remember that was written by another woman and I I never met her. I just bought the fanzine. It was something called Moving, I think. And I only remember it because it was... I remember thinking how brave it was. It was clearly someone who was quite feminist, but had like put poetry in it. And it was kind of amazing. I wish I had it because I really remember reading it and thinking, wow, that's really brave. I mean, she was sort of writing really in-depth stuff. I don't know where I picked it up from. I can only imagine maybe it was maybe on that Anna Punk scene where people were a bit more kind of politicised and stuff. But um, I think if, effectively we just wanted to join in, <laughs> you know, because we were very young and quite shy and we didn't really know anyone in all of these music scenes and sort of buying fan scenes meant that you'd end up talking to the fanzine writers and then it just seemed like quite a good way to get into a scene if you're quite shy because you didn't actually have to have a conversation about anything except the fanzine or the band you're actually watching. <laughs> so that kind of, it was it was quite a social, but you know, also we were kind of, being in a band at the time was completely beyond us. You know, we couldn't play anything. So I think doing a fanzine seemed like a great way to be actively joining in. With you know, a lot, a lot of people I've spoken to, um, and not just for this podcast, though it's been great fun, but just in general about zines have said, at the time, maybe something, maybe like you, Mickey, they they discovered they could be musicians, but they they they're like, well, I'm I don't want to run a record company. I'm not looking to promote gigs. I'm not a musician, but I want to be a part of the scene and a fanzine. You know, I I like English at school. I like expressing my thoughts. So I've got enough ego that I'll go ahead and do this. Or I like the idea of selling it to people at gigs because then I'll get to meet people. Any of those things, a fanzine was a way to be part of a scene. And it was a really important way to be part of a scene. If you took the zines out of, out of the culture back in from the late seventies, probably for the next decade, at least there was no scene really you needed, you needed those zines. So I understand where you're both coming from that, that, you know, probably the same reason I started mine initially is just, Oh, this gives me a way in a way in to be a, a part mm. of a scene. I, I really echo that. I mean, it also, I don't know, I've never been to huge numbers of gigs on my own, but certainly going to gigs on your own sometimes as 
I mean, I find it kind of awkward now that <laughs> I do do it. But, you know, some gigs you go to and you know you'll know loads of people there. Others you're like, where is everyone? I thought, I know people here. Oh, I'm all on my own. But um, if you go with a pile of fanzines to sell, of course, you have a completely different experience, don't you? And um, I'm not saying you didn't get harassed as a teenage girl selling fanzines, but you got harassed in a, at least a slightly different way, um, potentially. So, yeah, I definitely did it to be part of something, knowing that I wouldn't be a musician. I wasn't outgoing. I wouldn't be on stage. But um, I guess I did. I did think I wanted to manage bands or run a record label or something like that. But I'm not sure I, do. I certainly don't want to manage bands anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's... Or maybe 50-year-old bands, just not 20-year-old bands. That's quite a good point, actually. I hadn't thought of that because I do think that as so I always thought it was really interesting when I look back at all my diaries when I was writing the book. That honestly, the number of times I got like harassed and you know not just sexually groped, but even sort of just really aggressive behaviour at like quite big gigs. You know those sort of you know it probably happens now do you know what I mean if there's a 16 year old girl in amongst a load of like you know late 20s blokes are all jumping up and down to you too they just elbow some girl out the way don't they you know and I think it was just almost a weekly occurrence that kind of thing and I do think that going to smaller gigs and meeting people there was a sort of band of protection around you because if anything like that happened there was actually you know, you could, I do actually remember doing that, you know, of Emma getting really upset at some gig and suddenly there's this bunch of like beefy psychobillies who are looking to beat someone up on her behalf, you know, so I hadn't thought of that, that's quite a good point. <laughs> As recruiting an army. I think that's something really, really valid. And uh, I, I don't, the, you know, the plan here is to talk more about zine culture and where it took our lives, uh, but but Mickey, your your book, uh, which I should give its full title, "Fingers Crossed: How Music Saved Me from Success," um, a good half of it is about your upbringing, uh, which to me is is uh, yeah, music memoirs are relatively common. Not many people had an upbringing like yours, uh, which is the best way I can put it. Is it sounds insane? I mean, it just sounds insane i i came from what was called back in the day a broken home i think that was a, a derogatory expression but i was raised by a single mom and my dad was overseas for much of the time yours was uh, uh sort of the flip your mom went overseas and you stayed behind uh in london with your dad it was insane you stayed with your dad and your nazi hungarian nazi grandmother it, it, it's utterly utterly insane and uh some of what you survived i i i i I'm amazed you came through it, um, not not you know thoroughly thoroughly damaged. I mean, I mean, I'm even just happy you came through. I imagine some people don't come through upbringings like that. It, it's it not it, you're very clear that not all of it was bad by any means because you got to chat around the world, but it was insane. It uh, seems yeah, to me. It was. It, I mean, it was really insane. I think it was just it. There was the the one thing I would say in terms of you know there were some very bad things that happened but there was so much going on that in some ways um I think you know even even when like you know there's like abuse in the book and there there are some really dark periods but to be honest it's just a few pages in the book because there's so much else happening so it never really although it sort of kind of affected my personality and and made me sort of you know probably quite reckless in some ways but to be honest that is the environment I was brought up in anyway you know my dad was a very powerful kind of figure in my life 
And for all his faults, he was also a very compelling and incredibly fun person to be around. I'm not going to lie. So I think, yeah, it was quite nuts. It was very fragmented. It was here, there and everywhere. It was across the oceans and lots of, you know, there was never really anywhere to settle, I think. But um, I do think that there was a kind of seize the day element that I'm sort of quite grateful to my dad for inheriting, which I think even, you know, comes right back to the fanzine because I do think, you know, I often was the person who would go, well, let's just do it, you know, to Emma. Let's just do a fanzine. You know, it doesn't matter what's in it. <laughs> you know, my, that's where it all falls apart, right? Fair enough. But, you know, it there was something about that enthusiasm of just like action, right, you know. And I think when we started the fanzine, you know, we were so juvenile at school. It was, I think, I don't know. I know like puerile is part of being a teenager, but I do think we were slightly obsessed. And we did kind of, those. there's these little charts that we used to put in that would, I mean, literally just rude words inserted into band names, right? Uh, or substituting band names. So, you know, Japan becomes crapan or, or <laughs> Barry Manilo becomes hairy fanilo I mean they're so bad right and we used to sit in our lessons and literally write these to each other and just be like you know in tears laughing and then we put them in the fanzine lord knows why because we just thought well it's content we could take up half a page with that and most of the theme of the the fanzine kind of went along those lines it was just very very silly and quite smutty um so on that level I would say it's quite genuine at least it's honest (laughs) about who we were and we were absolutely awful we did try doing band interviews but we were absolutely terrible at them and I'd say looking at both your fanzines and especially you know at Kvatch because I do think as a girl on your own doing interviews like that with quite kind of you know, some quite high profile people. And I'm sort of amazed by how undaunted you were. And, you know, to even approach those people. I'd love to know how you kind of went about it. It's it's funny, isn't it? Because I look back at my fanzine and it's so kind of, it's trying so hard to be, I suppose, I don't know if growing up is the right word, but it's so kind of worthy, isn't it? Like I've got all these political articles about these things I've just literally discovered because you know it's 1984 and I'm thinking of doing economics a level and the minor strikes on in Yorkshire and you know I've become really political and it's it's so yeah it's so kind of worthy and yours just seems much more fun and exciting and and teenage I was actually aware of it at the time and I had forgotten until I read your book actually because obviously it wasn't in my mind when I did that chapter for Rich um, Rip Torn and Cut but I never wrote off for it I suppose you just never had enough 50ps did you to or 20 p's to, to tape to bits of cardboard so ours, ours was 5p so there's no 5p oh wow I was a- <laughs> that gives me an opportunity to mention to, to mention the uh, the tagline it's on uh, it's on issue two it may be crap but it's only 5p uh, which is <laughs> you know that, that's the uh, self-deprecating part that that i think a lot of fanzines uh, fanzines do do have uh, yeah mickey it's it's of interest to me that you only spared two pages in this incredible book it is an incredible book 
uh, on its own, on its absolutely its own merits. Um, and what I would say is, but, but because you've done lots of interviews about the book, and I'm happy to share the best of them out in the show notes here, but um, it seems to me that it's, it's, you find Emma at this school in central London, I think it's Queen something. Uh, you're, I mean, central London, I think you're in Piccadilly or something just ridiculous. You're like right in the heart of central London. It's a posh school, and you and Emma are kind of the... Uh, you know, the initially figure yourselves young cool kids and you you find your your friend. Obviously, that's the person you went on to do uh, Lush with. And I guess that's when you, you felt you had somebody you could bounce the fanzine off of. Because I agree with you. If you don't kind of hit on a... If you don't often do an idea when it comes to you, you can talk yourself out of it within 24 hours. Sometimes you just have to be, that idea is good right now. Let's just do it before we we, we before we don't do it. I guess that's what happened with you and Emma to some extent. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I think, you know, when I went to Queen's College and I'd been to so many different schools before then and Emma arrived a year after me. So that was in Harley Street. I mean, her dad, so she lived at the Naval and Military Club in Piccadilly, right? Her dad was the club secretary, having retired from the military. And we were both sort of only children and we had like a group of friends who I talk about in the book, you know, there was about five or six of us who would go, you know, started going to gigs together. But I think me and Emma being the kind of only children and having quite odd backgrounds, hers in a completely different way to mine, did sort of mean that we actually had probably the most freedom um, and also uh, were you know the most lonely probably so I think we ended up spending a lot of time together and that's how the fanzine you know came about because we had the time to do that and had you know more freedom to go to gigs and go out when we wanted to because we were quite unsupervised and you know arguably quite neglected but um, I think our sort of you know, there was a kind of wanting to be out in the world. So home was not necessarily a very happy place, I would argue that. And it was wanting to find a community outside of that. And I think the fanzine community was, it was incredibly easy. You know, you could, there was, there really wasn't any kind of competitiveness that I remember. It really was like a welcoming, you know, someone get, you gave someone a fancy and they were like, oh, you know, and they were swapping addresses and la la la. Oh, my address is inside. Send me this, la la la. People would contribute pages. We had this comic, like contributing pages to Alphabet Soup. And we had all sorts of people who were offering to write stuff and, help out we'd go to gigs out of town and they'd let us stay at their houses and we'd do the same so you know it was an immediate kind of networking that I absolutely suited me you know that's you know I went to stay at James Brown's place when the Sister Mercy played you know what I mean and I don't know it was going all over the country but anyway but you know it was I think that's what I really kind of hankered after I don't think we were very creative I, I do think that the, the fanzine suffered a bit because we were just so excited to meet loads of people that we'd let them contribute and then ended up barely writing anything ourselves you know <laughs> but there's 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 a uh, uh there's a lot i want to talk about with um 
with with Claire's zines and especially with what you did with Sarah records and the fanzines you did with Sarah and uh, just sort of chronologically I, I wouldn't mind just talking a, a little bit more about Alphabet Soup first um, n- not least because you only gave it those two pages in your book um, <laughs> because of that I'm going to quote from whichever that the ranting poet hosted that site Stand Up and Spit I'm sure I, I, I know who it is but that's where I found a couple of uh, additional issues and he describes it as a zine known for its sense of humor and comedy porn it was put together by emma anderson and the awesome mickey bereni i got to know them as regulars at redskins gigs there's actually quite a lot to unpack in there the other you've got comedy porn redskins gigs <laughs> um you, yeah that you know, was him so, i think Tim from, I can't, what's his second name now? God, that's terrible. I can't remember. Yeah, I met Tim at, at Redskins. I remember him coming around my house once and we sat and watched Henry's Cat on the telly. That's all I can remember. But um, uh, I think, again, you know, going to something, because we went to so many different kinds of gigs and I think things were so factual at the time. People, if you went to like Redskins gigs, they were like, why are you going to see the Sisters of Mercy? You know, if you went to, I don't know, you know, Blythe Power, you know, they'd have a go at you for going to see the men they couldn't hang. And I know, or the milkshakes or whatever, you know. So I think to me and Emma, it was just a a kind of sea of of opportunities rather than being really factional. And in a funny way, I think Alphabet Soup worked quite well. It didn't go down so well in Amico circles. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> the field and the smart got into a, a bit of trouble in those sort of very politicised spaces. But on the whole... Because it wasn't really about, you know, a kind of, you know, I mean, you you know, you were saying that you were kind of naive about, you know, you're in the minor strike and you got very worthy and into politics and you're kind of like, you know, doing all that. Well, you know, I didn't even have the nous to do that. I just had a massive go about the music papers, not understanding the difference between goth and positive punk. Right. That's about as kind of ranty and political as I got really at the time Um, but it did mean that it didn't matter so much where we sold it like people would just buy it also because it was so cheap I mean that was because my dad actually used to sneak it into his office job and do all the photocopying for us so we didn't have to pay for that Um, we just had to pay for staples and electroset so that was it it was very cheap to produce I think something I found interesting, I wanted to ask, it's a bit of a devil's advocate question, really. And and, and for my sins, I don't remember Alphabet Soup from the time. Uh, my my really big fanzine days were probably late 70s, early 80s. And by sort of 83, 84, jamming was more of a magazine. I just was probably seeing less of the individual zines. But um, it, we, we, we do have to address, you know, there's an elephant in the room, uh, which, which we are addressing, which is just there weren't enough girls doing fanzines and uh you're a couple of people who broke the mold but but the fact claire that you're you're you know you you got to write that you just didn't know other editors speaks about how rare it was and it was not an overnight thing for punk you know the the, the gap between punk and riot girl is a, is like you know a, it's it's an entire person's early life there's a lot, lot of years in between that before before things changed um for for you mickey i you know boys probably could not have got away with quite doing what you did, uh, unless they were Viz comics, and which I think is worth referencing because you both reference Viz and both seem to have mm-hmm. a fondness a fondness for it. Uh, 
you know, in some ways, and looking at the pictures in your book where there's five of you at school dressed up as Duran Duran perfectly sitting in the park, it, <laughs> it's hilarious. You're coming to it a little bit from uh, this is the devil's advocate part, you know, like yours, it, it's almost the role that's expected. We can joke about we can joke about sex and give all these groups their ridiculous names because we're girls. Um, and almost like that's what's expected. I mean, what's more interesting to me is the freedom. There's a, femi- there's a feminist aspect to your absolute freedom to say, we're going to say what the hell we like, what the F we like, and we're going to sell it to you. And, you know, that is, that is the feminist statement. Now, I'm projecting an awful lot in there, but, but is that something that you feel you could comment on, especially given that there wasn't a big precedent of girls doing fanzines, uh, though there should have been? I mean, I I just don't think we thought about it that much. We literally put together a fanzine that was, you know, the world that we were familiar with. You know, we had like a sort of, you know, those sort of quizzes that you used to get in Jackie or something, you know, what kind of whatever are you? And, and we did things like that and Diary of a Soul Girl. And, you know, they were very sort of things that were from familiar areas of publishing that were directed at girls, you know, and I think that we weren't, we we didn't know enough to actually be ashamed of that. It just, you know, we were quite like, you know, like I say, the effort we made to think like, okay, we'll interview a band, right? The first band we interviewed was this band called Geschlecht Act that were quite kind of gothy and rocky and I don't know, they were probably had like six fans at the time. So we thought that we could approach them. They might actually do an interview with us. And it was a disaster because we, you know, we, they supported Furio. We had a tape. Rec- Emma had some massive tape recorder she bought to the gig. Forgot to press record when we finally got to do this interview. So I had to make it all up from memory. And I was off my face on cider. So I didn't know what had gone on. I mean, the actual interview I sort of remembered some anecdote that they used to have a saxophone player and I put in the actual interview, we'll just call him John. And then never referred to him again. (laughs) It was so ridiculous. We interviewed Exmail Deutschland and we just, I just remember sitting in this hotel room in like almost complete silence, like nudging Emma and, you know, it was just appalling. We were just terrible at it. And we had to go and I just realised that, To be honest, it wasn't like some great feminist statement that we're just going to, you know, do the thing that we want to do. It's literally all we could do. Right. It would have been an empty fancy and otherwise. Right. There was crosswords and things with, you know, just ridiculous kind of clues and, you know, heavy metal band rhymes with wank. You know, I mean, it was just (laughs) (laughs) just totally ridiculous. But. The thing is, is we had a really good, you know, that was our bonding time. So we would actually do that together and it was really good fun. And the selling part of it was just a laugh. But by then we didn't really care that much. You know, there wasn't a lot of editing that went on. And I think that, you know, um, it's. I just found it remarkable that anyone actually thought it was good. But I remember coming back from a gig in Uxbridge somewhere and, and being on the train and there were people behind us reading it out to each other and absolutely pissing themselves laughing which kind of really validated oh, brilliant you know yeah. when me and emma were looking at each other going like oh you know <laughs> so that was really nice but it's really interesting reading your fans in claire like i say you know the kind of 
interview, I thought it was brilliant. There's a really little interview with John Peel and you managed to get a quote out of him, which I thought would have been like, you know, I don't remember the enemy or the Melody Maker having that detail where he was talking about David Kidd Jensen and saying, you know, oh, I really miss him. He was like one of the few people I really liked and got on with at Radio 1. And I thought that's such a great gem to get, you know, yeah. of John Peel. And I think that you know, was I the think... postal one, I think. I don't think I met him at that point. So, yeah. So, But some but... of them were... Yeah, but did I you? Because suppose... I, I did ask that earlier, but I was just kind of curious how you managed to sort of navigate all these interviews. I think I had a certain bravado that I, I don't know if you found this, but at 16, I had this kind of bravado that I lost later and sort of became more self-conscious. So I, I remember getting in big trouble for running up the phone bill, making national calls to kind of record company offices and things like that to try and get phone numbers to see if I could interview bands when they came to Leeds and stuff like that. And really just having the the front to ask. But, and as, I mean, I sort of remind myself of this sometimes, you know, when you're sort of afraid to ask something, you think, oh, they'll say no or whatever, and you just don't bother. And most times when people, you know, I didn't have that fear of it when I was 16, and I'm not quite sure at what point I kind of reacquired it, because I think I I also think having not seen a fanzine when I decided to write one, I hadn't kind of realised that girls didn't do this. And I don't think I really encountered I mean there was the sort of standard girls do cooking boys do woodwork at school but it was only really when I started running Sarah which I did with another fanzine writer called Matt Haynes who did I used to get, to get happy fanzine and it was you know Sarah very much grew out of that fanzine scene and he'd been part of a flexi label and I'd done a flexi disc and we both had these kind of mailing lists of people we knew who would be interested in the records we were going to put out so we sort of had this instant instant sort of not necessarily fan base, but interest, potentially interested parties base. But it was only when we started doing that together that the sexism or the really casual assumption that he was doing this and I was his girlfriend helping and suddenly, you know, I'm having to kind of fight to justify my existence and my place in it and, and still am to some degree. <laughs> it is just, but yeah that was when it became really frustrating and sort of really obvious that this was much more a boys world or a men's world than a girls world or women's world but I I do wonder actually when you did interviews because I you see I think there was quite a few fans in you know there are there are a lot of bands that I think yeah membranes yeah you know uh, there's kind of I, just, I can't list them all but you know when I was looking through all fans yeah, I thought there's some kind of ones that used to crop up in a lot of other fans Every you know, they obviously yeah, yeah. they were they were the bands that said yes to you know all of that but it probably Everybody, was yeah. quite it probably was quite refreshing for them to have a you know teenage girl turn up and do these interviews rather than some you know the usual really earnest bloke who knows every kind of I don't know, sort of detail of some studio they recorded their first Yeah, demo I wasn't asking them about <laughs> distortion pedals. I probably didn't know what one was. But I think I ambushed some of them in dressing rooms, actually, after. I'm not sure I managed to fix them up all in advance. 
And I certainly took friends along from moral support a couple of times. I remember pot will eat itself on a Saturday lunchtime in Stourbridge in the pub or, you know, whatever. But um, but most of them were really gracious and and nice. Um, I'm not sure the interviews were always much cop, but that was much more me than them, I think. So, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you, I don't know, you catch a band when they've just come off stage or something like that. I mean, or interviewing the Pogues and surprise, surprise, they've had a drink or two. Um, you know, but I don't think I was totally grasping that. <laughs> I, you were kind enough to uh, send us, uh, both of us, uh, issue five, by which point I guess you were selling 1,500 uh, and I don't know if you scanned it for uh, specifically for this interview, but thanks for sending it. And that one has interviews with Half Man, Half Biscuit and House Martins, two very sort of mid eighties uh, mm. indie indie groups. And what I would say is is uh, um, you you seem to almost expect them to be impolite to you. Uh, there's there's a there's a sense of uh, like. Um, because I found this at times as well. I sort of didn't, in my early days, maybe I still do, I didn't come very well prepared always. And I would ask some question that didn't really have a question mark at the end of it. And, you know, a band, if you do that, sometimes a band can be a little bit dismissive to you. And it seemed like Half Man, Half Biscuit were really up for for talking. And, and maybe because of the lyrics, you were kind of expecting to get sort of like knocked about a little bit by them. And they're like, no, you know, whoop, whoop. We'll talk football's the greatest thing in life. It's and and here's why. And um I I definitely got that sense of it was a word you used earlier. What was the word you used? Worthy. I, I made a note of earnest. I think that um mm. you know, it was a very earnest period. You're right. And you've got articles in there about Amnesty International and some other organization I hadn't didn't know. And clearly you were being you were very politicized, uh very, very politicized. And I think that's in, that's important. And a lot, I think a lot of my politicization came from other fanzines, to be honest. Mickey, you were talking about the anarcho punk scene, but very much that scene. And it's probably around the time I became vegetarian. And, um, you know, and I think, Tony, I saw you talking about coming, becoming vegetarian because of Meaty's murder in an interview somewhere um, when I was looking around earlier, but very much the same thing. But, um, but yeah, reading other people's fanzines. And I think. I think I asked the wedding present about apartheid in South Africa or something like you that. You did. You know, and it's just like, and you know, and actually David spent some of his childhood in South Africa, but it's just like, you know, they're a band playing guitar and they don't necessarily want to sort of voice these political opinions. And you just, I mean, you know, and they would have been dead grown up, at, by which I mean like 21 or something. And think, oh my God, why is this kid asking us about apartheid? Um, you know, we just want to talk about, you know, distortion pedals or something so i don't know and a good way to grow up though i think and probably um quite a fast upbringing in some ways just meeting all these people a few years older than you and having slightly random conversations with them and getting different reactions i guess i mean clearly you and, would you probably would, quite yeah. probably quite unguarded ones because it wasn't like they were going to get published in a national exactly paper, yeah. do you know what i mean so i do wonder if like people could be a bit more kind of candid when doing like a fancy interview and just have a nice chat actually and and you know it was never going to get abused in the way that it you know I think people were quite wary with the music papers often because they'd have an angle 
Whereas I think there was something quite honest about fanzines that was always like, I mean, that was the point. You didn't necessarily have to be a fan of the band, but you were never going to slag them off, you know what I mean, or do something crappy to them. So, Yeah, because you only interviewed them if you liked them, didn't you? And I think, I don't know, I don't think I had the sort of now or imagination to do anything other than transcribe the interviews extremely literally. So, you know, if that's what they said, that's what got printed. You know, um, So, yeah, you're certainly, yeah, as you say, you've got no agenda, have you? I certainly didn't have. So, I think the two of you hit on two really crucial points. Uh, that One of the most common things that comes up when you try and define a fanzine, and uh, there was this great book that uh, I kicked off this second uh, more more general fanzine podcast series, uh, the interview with the guys who put together We Peaked at Paper, which uh, runs a long history of British zines, like, like way up to the present day. Um, and, and the music of the punk and what we now call post-punk period is about a part of it. Uh, anyway, it's the irreverence is really, really important. And uh, that it, it, it's an honesty and an irreverence that marks a fanzine um, for being a fanzine. The, 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 you know, the, the question that's almost like you know, off the wall or, or snap back or something. Um, but the other, the other thing being hit on that you only wrote about bands you like, for the most part, I think that's true. And your actual first issue, Claire, was basically a defense of the alarm, wasn't it? But, uh, <laughs> and, and, and in which we, we yep. sort of have that, we sort of have that in common. Um, I, was, uh, I was a big fan of the alarm and I, I got to reunite with Mike Peters a couple of years ago after way too long not being in contact with him. And they were hated by the music press. I mean, my own credibility at the end of jamming, you know, my own credibility suffered enormously because it's like, oh, you know, Tony likes the alarm, how, uh, how uncool he turned out to be. Uh, so, you, uh, you know, you've got this real, real de- de- defense of them. And I think that's another part of, of the fanzine culture is, you know, we're backing an underdog here. We're, we, you know, can you talk about that a little bit? And, and you're, yeah, you're welcome to talk about the alarm and what they meant to you. Well, they were the first band I really saw live other than, so my first gig was Tears for Fears at Harrogate Conference Centre. I grew up in Harrogate, which was the year um, Harrogate hosted Eurovision and uh, Bucks Fizz and everything. But the first band I really fell in love with and saw live were the alarm. And they they just put on a really good live show. And I think, you know, it's very instant music, isn't it? So I think for getting into your first band, they pretty much tick all of the boxes and they always seem to be incredibly decent and accessible people. So they'd be hanging around after the gig to meet the fans and that kind of thing. Um, I don't know, I was maybe 15, so this is hugely exciting. And it was at the point where they did Where Where Are You Hiding When the Storm Broke and had their hits and... um, Actually, no, 68 Guns was a big hit. Anyway, but um, so, you know, you've met some people who've been on top of the pops and they're nice and they're decent and they're approachable and they'll talk to kids doing fanzines and stuff. So I think what's not to like, but um, of course they weren't cool. And I didn't, I don't think I realised they weren't cool. So I got quite upset with the music press for kind of slagging them off and sent in my little defence, which I think I then printed in my fanzine and stuff. But I think... And because I remember reading Jamming at that point, and I probably bought it initially because the alarm were in it. And um, if I think of Jamming, to be honest, I, I, my parents moved into the house in 1975, and they're still in the house I grew up in from the age of eight. So I sort of visualised but what was my old bedroom and sitting on the floor by the radiator with a copy of Jamming, where I was probably <laughs> reading about the alarm. Um, but 
but yeah, they just they just tick the boxes. And then I think as I did more fanzines and you know um, discovered, I suppose the membranes and you know all of those fanzine fanzine bands from the time, I suppose you and went to more interesting gigs and different gigs and went into sixth form and made friends with people in the upper six who had driving licenses and you could get to Leeds more and, you know, and got to see more stuff. Then my tastes broadened. And I think I probably, probably realized that actually, oh, you're not really supposed to like the alarm and became a bit embarrassed. But <laughs> I saw the alarm. I remember seeing them at the marquee. Not I think. as much as I did, I bet. <laughs> no, no. I think it was with crown of thorns. I saw them. Um, but I think I know what you mean. There was a sort of, but you know that I think was so much more the kind of fanzine world because I would buy fanzine and I mean you didn't really care if the band who was in the fanzine wasn't your cup of tea, right? It wasn't really the point, was it? It wasn't, you know, you didn't buy the fanzines because it was like, oh, I want to read about the membranes. It was, you know, yeah, it was. That was just part of the, 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 you know, so I think what was interesting about fanzines, they did sell themselves on a kind of personality. And I think they did have different personalities, you know, the, whoever, I mean, you know, I think probably vague was the most obvious one for mm. someone's own kind of personality being such a sort of core, however much he wrote about like bands or whatever it was, you know, it was very much his style and, his concerns that kind of sort of shone through that magazine and that was the point of buying it you know um and I think as much as you know I kind of track you know I got into the music press and I think a lot of fanzine writers did go into the music press clearly but I think so I'm just kind of interested Tony for you like to go from that transition of a fanzine world and into like mm. kind of an actual magazine publication like the when you say like you had like loads of people trying to cancel you for liking the alarm I'm just sort of quite intrigued because I think from the fanzine world that was never a pressure of who was cool and who wasn't because clearly we were evidence of that as alphabet soup <laughs> but did you, you were find insanely that? young Tony as well weren't you I hadn't realized until recently just recently how young you were when you turned that into a proper magazine i i was insanely young i i look back on it and i'm a little a little surprised myself the best i can come up with is i was ludicrously precocious and um i was really fortunate that i was also attending school in central london um i think i was born three years ahead of you mickey and you know, 77, 78, we were um, a very short bus ride away from the Marquee Club from, from school. And I think it was much more, I've, I've said this a lot, it was much more to do with the fact that I was in the right place at the right time than it was necessarily my age. You write in, again, in that same chapter in the, in, in the book, uh, the Rip Torn and Cut book, you write that you didn't see being sort of 16, living in a small place in Yorkshire, any of these things being a hurdle. You didn't, you di didn't even occur to you that being a girl would be a hurdle. I didn't see that being 13 and starting the zine would, was, necessary, was a hurdle. I was just doing a school fanzine. And then I discovered I liked it. And then it took off. And then I actually found I fitted in with the scene and people liked me. Um, and I, I, I didn't fit in at school. I mean, I don't know what, you know, what, what different things we have, the three of us have in common, but um, I, I had, I had problems at school. I never felt comfortable with the hard boys, you know, and yet I was a big football fan. I mean, I couldn't fight, but I was a big football fan and, and I got bullied a lot. And I particularly got bullied really badly when jamming kind of got going when I was 14, 15. And I was like, so it actually became a self-perpetuating circle that because I was getting bullied at school for interviewing the jam 
or for like not not by the way i had some people who event, who had my back but i you know it, it was still a tough school and so i would then bunk off school more often to go and spend the afternoon at screedy Politi squat where i was welcome or to go to rough trade where i was welcome or to go to better badges or fifth column which was really important to me and all these places opened the door and 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 welcomed me in school uniform and everything so we're off on a we're off on a tangent there, but I appreciate your um I do appreciate your raising that. The uh you, you know for uh, Mickey, did you like when you went in, off you, into your musical career? Did you make a point of always talking to fanzines that would ask you because you remembered what it had been like? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I did answer every every handwritten letter, and you know, very very nervous young people at the stage door and I'd be like yeah sure absolutely no problem you know um for precisely that reason you know yeah so um you mentioned Claire about uh your your partner in in Sarah Matt also did a fanzine I guess uh, scared to get happy and uh, I I love and I hadn't known about all of this so this is like brand new to me, even though we're talking many years back. Uh, I love that Sarah had dedicated fanzine releases. So Sarah Records, a lot of people will know it. It's up to you can define it if you'd care to, uh, Claire. You were a very important record label. And there was a, there's a lot that some people might associate with it. I actually believe, like, like, like I concluded this in the last 48 hours, you came into your own putting together those Sarah zines because they became um, they were just much more expressive of who you were. And what I'm seeing with um, Kavach is a, a fanzine, but some of what you write about and it's sort of like incredible stream of consciousness. That's very poetic. It's like a whole cut up thing that you're doing. It seems to me that you're grabbing, you're doing a cut and paste almost from your own, diaries um i don't know if that was the case but i'd like you to talk about it a bit because it's a really integral part of sarah and it's where the the feminist aspect also really really comes out you you alluded to this about uh people calling up and expecting there to be a bloke answering the phone i do have that section open but you you, you go ahead and talk about the importance of doing fanzines as part of sarah records Sure. Yeah. I mean, Sarah, I suppose like a lot of record labels, Sarah probably started as a hobby that got a bit out of hand. So I was in the first year of university and Matt was a few years older and we were both fanzine writers. Um, and I suppose because we both came from such a fanzine culture and he had been part of Charla La Records, which was a little flexi label with four different fanzine writers distributing these flexi discs, very sort of C86. And we had met because we'd both done flexi discs with this band called The Sea Urchins, who then became Sarah One. I guess we always wanted fanzines to be at the heart of it. And I think there was a big thing back then about kind of not selling out, wasn't there? So we were fanzine writers, like you were saying, Mickey, every time someone wrote to you, you wrote a little note back. And we did that right until the end of Sarah. I mean, some of those letters we wrote back were, you know, here's Sarah 52. Thanks. Bye. But some people wrote us really, really intricate letters. And, you know, the people we wrote back to, some of them are still some of them are still friends. So <laughs> you kind of made friends through the post in the same way as you did with fanzine writers. So 
I guess we always just wanted to give the fanzines the same import as the records. And I guess they were kind of our contribution to the label and a lot of the records we put out, I mean, not all of them, but some of the songwriters wrote very personal, very kind of heartfelt lyrics, which, you know, sometimes are high up in the mix, sometimes are, are quite buried. But I guess it was almost like, and here's our contribution of our kind of heartfelt thoughts and inspired by Factory, of course, that, you know, you can give catalogue numbers to things that aren't records. So I think there was a nod in there to that, but we did maybe half a dozen fanzines through the period of Sarah of sort of varying, you know, Matt's half, my half, Matt's half, my half, or I did a standalone one. We did one where it was just kind of each of us did a sort of double spread and then we got a couple of other people to do a double spread and then chucked a board game in for good mix at one point. So, um, yeah. <laughs> the uh, the one that uh, really, uh, well, actually the first one that you did, I believe you wrote it from each end so did, w w matt did half you did half and they what they met in the middle or did they swap over and like like two uh, people they met in the middle and it had a flexi disc with it that was in the middle yeah right and then i think it's the one that you do that's the standalone so yours is called lemonade and i think his is called cold do you mind if i read something from this because i i actually think it's great um i mean um, i think it I'm sure I'll cope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've already alluded to it, and it's only the second paragraph here. So, you're, I mean, this is, you know, hey, this is Sarah Records, and uh, this is our fanzine, and you write, uh, I'll read you just a paragraph, but, and, then, and then I'm going to jump one to another. But you write, um, I hate you because I don't believe you'd have liked to look off so much if the girlies had been fat and acneed. I hate you because you phone and say, is that Sarah Records? And I say, yes, hello. And I can tell that... What you wanted was for me to say, just a moment, he will be right with you. And caps, all caps. I won't, I won't, I won't. I hate you for that, for dismissing me, for, for thinking, oh, just some girl, his girlfriend. And then you write about something where somebody else did a fanzine and people up in Scotland are like, oh, doesn't a bloke run Sarah Records? So you end that page by saying, this Sarah thing, it's two people joint decisions, equal finance, etc. He maybe does more of the boring drudge stuff like letter setting and packing up records into envelopes because I do other things. Right now, earning the money for the new releases, other times studying. No so-and-so and his wife slash girlfriend. I couldn't have done it without her. She was so understanding and did all the typing. Shit. But the two of us equals for once. It's really, really powerful. I, I mean, I'm sorry that you had to go through that in 1988, but it's, it's really powerful. Ooh, thank you. I was expecting something quite embarrassing, and that was all right, actually, wasn't it? Phew. And it hasn't changed as much as it should have, but it probably has changed a bit. But I I still find myself in the position where I read things where people will say, oh, Matt did this at Sarah, and you think, well, I know, actually, we either did that together or maybe I did that. So it, it still drives me crazy. Still really, really drives me crazy. So, it, it 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 definitely should do. Um, I, I if I can offer some some positives from the year twenty twenty three. I have a very important part of my life is uh, working with kids at our rock academy up here. Uh, I direct shows and and just do one evening of some some teaching guitar. And it's more than fifty percent female. And in fact, it's it's really dominated. And 
it's never doubted like that generation has no question it's very strange because we do shows the retro shows so it's they're always like an act usually or a culture or a genre and typically that genre is going to be you know a rock band from the past that's going to be voice but chances are you I've, I've had times where i've had like 13 people on stage and 10 12 of them have been have been the girls and and that is just so it's so refreshing it's really to see that it really really is it does not occur to them all their parents, I'm happy to say, that they can't play whatever instrument they want. Drums, guitar, sing, scream, take the boys' lyrics, all of it. So I'd like to offer that as some encouragement because it, no, it shames me I think bit. it has got way better, actually. I mean, certainly, I don't know what you you think, Mickey, but I'd say in the late 80s, if girls were in bands, they tended to be singers, didn't they? Or maybe keyboardist or backing vocal, certainly in the sort of, not always, but, you know, more in the more sort of C86 world that I was in, whereas... Now I think gig audiences are much more balanced and I think the people you'll see on stage doing all of the different, you know, playing all of the different instruments are, is much more balanced as well. Probably not uh, yes. quite there, but... Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly not 50-50, but no, no, I don't, I don't think it's quite as bad in terms of the assumption. I do think, you know, if you'd have got like a band arriving for their sound check it would have been normal for, you know, whoever worked there to go, are you the singer to the girl immediately, right? And I don't think that that's quite the same anymore. I think people understand more that, you know, they don't stand back in amazement if someone's got a female drummer, for instance, you know what I mean? Or nudge each other and snigger either. <laughs> it's just normal. It's fine. Um, but and you're more I likely think... to get a female sound engineer as well, I think, which you almost never did back in the day oh for sure yeah and I think all of that has I mean I do think there's this you know maybe that's part of the thing about kind of post-punk bands anyway and you know even the fanzine scene eventually is that you know there is a sort of democratization when there's a kind of quite a loose structure around something you know um it doesn't give an opportunity for people I certainly got into you know playing in bands because it suddenly looked incredibly easy right there wasn't some sort of weird hierarchy that you had to prove yourself to to get any you know you could, and the same with the fancy I mean you just do it staple it together and sell it there's no one kind of you know to stop you from doing that um I think that I don't know I mean maybe that's why things have changed you know it's quite difficult now because I do think there's just a sea of bands out there and I think the music papers did used to give a lot of coverage and even internationally, which you now have to do all on your own pretty much. Um, but it does mean that, you know, you're not filtered through that process where, you know, I certainly found as many as of the journalists that I really liked and, you know, and we got a lot of coverage in the music papers. There was that kind of you're a niche because you're a girl band you know, automatically, you know, and you get asked certain types of questions because you're a girl in a band. Um, and that and compared took... to other bands with girls in, as if that's the only logical comparison as well. So, yeah, and it's all very much, you know, I genuinely I've said this before, but I've genuinely felt that that a lot of the kind of, you know, features of women in rock or whatever I could understand there was a sort of positive motivation there as well of like giving people a platform, but it does end up putting you in a little box outside of everything else, you know, and othering you. Um, 
because then it's like, great, well, we've done that now. We don't have to bother with them for another sort of couple of months. Now we can get back to the blokes in the bands <laughs> who are the who are the norm. So, you know, and there was a lot of tokenism as well. And I think again, the problem with tokenism is that there's only room for one or two of you. <laughs> so, you know, women bands would go in and out of fashion, and and it's a bit like, oh, we're calling you because we couldn't get Kim Deal. <laughs> <laughs> or, or whoever oh, we had a girl on the cover last month so yes <laughs> i i writing the uh in in the compendium of of, of jamming i mean it was it, it was in it was actually embarrassing to realize that um we hadn't had a female band member on the, on a cover until the final year of jamming um when we had talking heads on the cover and, and the, uh, the penultimate issue had Cocteau twins on the cover. Um, uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm not at all proud of that. Although at the same time to defend myself, I go back to its real fanzine days and 1979 when there were six bands on the cover, I was off interviewing and loving. I mean, I love Delta five talking of the Yorkshire connection. They were one of my favorite bands and, um, uh, Opairs and all of those bands got featured in Jammy. I think I'm talking about more when we went more commercial and we had front covers. Uh, and yet at the same time, I mentioned earlier, you know, my uh, upbringing was single mom. So I was always very, very attuned to this. I was attuned to women being underpaid. I was attuned to, to women having to do, you know, two jobs um, and, uh, and was always on the lookout to try and get more uh, uh, female writers involved in jamming. But it, it was often a matter of actually having to ask, like like having to say, you know, I, I, we would welcome this. We we're not getting the we're not getting the applications. So it it it, it that all did take a while. I wanted to um, ask as we kind of move towards the end of this, uh, what did for very few of us do fanzines for life? The same fanzine. There are one or two people who've made it their sort of life work, but very 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 few of us do. What did your fanzine experience you know, give you? Uh, what did you take from it that helped set you up for the other things you've achieved? Which, in terms of what you're known for, you know, Claire, it's for your record label and, and Mickey, it's for, for your music, but it could be for other things as well. Go on, Claire, you go first. I'm trying to think of something. Well, I was going to say for me, I mean, we would never have done Sarah Records if we hadn't have come out of fanzines and it was just so fundamental to who we both were and how we met each other. And I first met Matt when I tried to flog him a fanzine at um, Primal Scream supporting Julian Cope quite soon after I'd moved to Bristol. So it, I mean, it's a long time since I've been involved in the music industry, but um, yeah, without doing a fanzine, I wouldn't have done any of, I, I don't know if I would have found a niche in the music industry. So I wanted to work in the music industry. I had no idea how to go about this. I mean, my dad was a sociology lecturer. My mum was a librarian. And I thought, oh, I'd like to manage bands for a living. I was just like in North Yorkshire, you know. So I think fanzines just gave you that that way to be part of something. Like like you said earlier, Mickey, you could, it's a scene you could join and there didn't seem to be really any barriers to entry. If you wanted to be part of it, all you had to do was write a fanzine or, you know, equally... Um, playing a band but I, I was never going to do that so so no I suppose I mean I think it sounds a bit naff to say that writing a fanzine changed my life but really just one thing did lead to another so um, so yeah everything is my answer <laughs> I mean I think 
because I think you know Emma and I I tell you what happened right is that I think by the time we did the last issue of the fanzine first of all I think it was actually getting a bit embarrassing some of sorry swore (laughs) some of the sort of more more kind of um fruity aspects of the fanzine was sort of we were growing out of it a bit and it was becoming a bit of a burden and I think like things were already changing like I think I remember James Brown getting a job at Sounds and offering us a column and this comic actually the guy actually Chris Donald I remember him like posting me some letter and saying oh can you like put this in the envelope and send it to IPT because we're I don't know what they were trying to do or what scam they were trying to do but (laughs) I I ended up like they wanted a London postmark on this letter whatever it was anyway they offered us because they were going to go national as well with IPC so they were offering us a a kind of pop column or whatever so there were these things that could have led right to other things and I just thought we're just not very good at this (laughs) I did I did just think it was it you know the idea of having to write to a deadline and actually come up and be on that platform like the whole joy for me of doing a fanzine is that it was low level and it was in our control and if someone thought it was rubbish it didn't really matter right it didn't cost us anything and I think being judged on that level of actually having to justify your position and your space that you've been given you know I just don't think we were up to it at all so so and by then already we'd started doing band stuff and I think so the jumping point for me with the fanzine I think was me and Emma effectively having some sort of working relationship, which kind of bled into then, well, we've done fanzine together, we can do a band together. And it sort of seamlessly went into that, really. Um, So, but, you know, it's kind of interesting that I ended up kind of writing a book. And I do think that, you know, writing a fanzine, writing kind of... um, you know, I became a sub editor as well. But all of these things were like, you know, that that enjoyment of writing for it for writing's sake, that it, it's actually something that I enjoy doing. And I think putting together the fancy was um it was you know, it's funny because you're sort of saying, Oh, you know, you got you got to see the other side when you were like a musician and how did you treat fanzine writers then? I think what was interesting as well about having to do that stuff is it did give me I've always had quite a lot of time for music journalists you know because I do understand the thing that might have driven them when they were 16 years old and you know wherever they were in the country and and churning out reviews and trying to you know become find their own voice and you know how how that works um you know there's something about the marriage of a writing talent but also a great love of something that is quite specific, I think, to music journalism, you know, when it's done well. And I do think the roots of that are often in that kind of fanzine scene. And I'm sure it was for even, you know, political fanzines for them. You know, I've got a mate, Warren, who used to write a fanzine, a very political person. And, you know, I think all of these sort of branches went off, you know, they started in this little community of fanzine. And just to make the point, I I thought it was really sweet in your, in fact, that, it triggered my memory that you've got that column of like other fanzines to send off for. And we all did that. You know, there was no kind of competitiveness. Oh, I don't want them to sell more than me. It was, we all wanted everyone to do well. And I think being 
coming from that community was sort of probably really inspiring for everyone in all sorts of different ways, like gave them the confidence to move on to whatever they were doing, whether it was a band, whether it was running a label, whether it was wanting to be a manager, because I just think to have that little injection of belief and confidence at that age is actually really important. You know, when at school they don't understand you, they're bullying you, when your parents are involved in something completely different and have no idea what you're talking about. To have that sort of support at that age, I think, is, you know, absolutely key to going on achieving other things. On that note, uh, there is a final final issue that you didn't print, uh, I guess. Oh, I didn't really mention that you did your you you weren't the only fanzine to do this, but one of only two or three. You didn't uh, number your fanzines, Mickey. They were alphabetized. So you published A through E. And then uh, that same stand up and spit, uh, I guess you sent Tim a couple of. Uh, scans from a from an unpublished issue f where you have a diary of a fanzine writer is that you i don't know if that's you or emma or somebody else but it is so spot on that i actually at first thought it was for real and then i then i realized well hang on you did that was your fanzine was not called uh uh what uh sorry what's the name of it here um what's the name of it bride's assistance your fanzine was not called bride's assistance but it is it is utterly hilarious uh um i mean I'll, I'll link to it i think um was that was that you mickey i would love to be, i mean do you know i'm try- you know what- i'm actually trying to remember because we we used to do the diary i think we had a diary thing in every one of them i think I can't remember because I, I just think issue F, we just gave up halfway through and thought, actually, this just isn't going to happen. So they're just pages in a in a sort of A4 folder somewhere. Right. Uh, well, listen, thank you. Thank you so much, considering we've, we've never actually uh, knowingly. I, I mean, I, I don't know if I had a conversation with you that, that, that day in Brockle Park, Mickey. I guess not, judging by you weren't certain that that, that was me. But uh, I've never knowingly had a conversation with either of you. I don't think the two of you have knowingly had a conversation with each other. Uh, I, I guessed from the emails that before this interview, we were going to have a good time. And, and, uh, and we really, really have. Thank you. Thank you. That was really good fun. Thanks. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers right back at you, Mickey. Cheers to you as well, Claire. Thank you so much for uh, entertaining my various emails, my follow-ups, the time you put into this, for engaging in the conversation, for reading each other's fanzines that we shared in advance, and uh, obviously for the conversation, and also for your contributions to pop music culture. And I think in Mickey's case, with fingers crossed her book, uh, for a contribution to uh, to a more literary culture and a memoir culture, uh, the first half of that book is standalone. It's pre lush. It's uh, the the story of her very remarkable childhood. It needs a second act for it to be a successful memoir. Her second act is lush. It it could have been something else, and it could have been something. Um, uh, uh, that, that didn't have its moments of glory. Unfortunately, Lush uh, ends tragically, and you may or may not know about that, but it does. I, I strongly encourage you to get the book. I think one reason I find it so special is something that we discuss uh, very clearly in this episode, that for all that punk rock was meant to change everything, it took a generation before the girls were even considered to be on equal footing and it's taken several more generations to, to work its way through and that was also the case not just with fanzines um, but also the case with 
memoirs, music memoirs. It took a while to get, to, to get there. I think it started for me as a reader with Viv Albertine's incredible book. I think if I've got it right, it's close, 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 music, 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 boys, boys, boys. For me, the next one that had a really big impact uh, was Tracy Thorne's. It's a very different book. I have it on my bookshelf. I should have had it at hand here. Is it called Bedsitter Pop Star? Bedroom Pop Star? No, no Tony. Tony. It's, it's called Bedsit Disco Queen, Queen and you should have known that. And for me, Mickey's is the third in a triumvirate there um, that maybe brings it more up to date, sort of picking up from the mid 80s uh, is when when her musical sort of involvement gets going and continuing with the story of Lush. I'm embarrassed, uh, offended too, by the amount of sexism that uh, Lush were exposed to in the music business, considering the music business is meant to be a cool place. And there's lots more I can say actually about how the book impacted and affected me. I will need to save it probably for another space. And I want to say from here, I'm going to get on a bit of a rant and a bit of a soapbox. Um, uh, I put out this podcast because I can't help myself because I realize and it's really struck me over the years. I just have creative urges and I like to communicate with people. That's why I did a fanzine in the first place. You know, a lot of self-therapy has helped me. (laughs) get there um mickey made music and continues to do so and claire did you know a fanzine was important to her and she put out and um, the great records and was involved you know co-running a great great important record label all of us sort of have had to end up doing other things at times in our lives to pay the bills so that brings me to this point We live in a consumer culture and as consumers, we do get a lot for free and we just expect to get things for free. Podcasts, music, etc, etc. Well, they come through subscription services. They come through platforms that do manage to make money out of us. And it's time, uh, you know, we all have to give back. We all have to realize that even if somebody's not coming up to us at a gig and saying, do you want to buy a fanzine? Uh, that occasionally we have to get out here on our podcast platform and say, do you want to contribute? Do you want to buy this podcast? I've t- uh, not toyed seriously with the idea of a Patreon page because I don't really have extras I want to give you. And it hasn't felt quite right. I have been encouraged to go the Substack route and I'm exploring it right now because apart from being able to promote these shows, I have a lot of writing that doesn't get published or I've or archive writing and a lot of stuff that I'd be happy to get out to people. In the meantime, I'm frustrated with the fact that every day I contribute for free to Mark Zuckerberg's platforms, making him richer, um, and both his platforms, um, Mickey and uh, Claire, whose uh, social media accounts uh, I'm going to link to in the show notes, along with a bunch of places you can find their fanzines and different things that they've done. You know, they're out there uh, helping uh, Elon Musk on Twitter, and all of us who make music are busy getting that Swedish guy rich on Spotify where we never earn a penny and Jeff Bezos at Amazon where we never earn a penny and whoever took over from Steve Jobs at Apple where we never really earn a penny and it's time to just say there's a supporter feature uh, connected to this podcast you will see a link at the bottom of your show notes you should have two options when you get to the bottom of the show notes. One of them should be a link over to the One Step Beyond supporter page. Uh, that's my other podcast. And like this one, it does not take ads. I don't want ads on this show because most ads on most podcasts are really, really, really crappy. And worse than that, they often repeat and repeat and repeat. And whether they're for McDonald's or some gambling thing, I don't want to be a part of all of that. 
The other link should be to the ACAST Plus supporter page where you can make a one-time contribution of five bucks, just five bucks, or a monthly contribution, like you're subscribing to a fanzine. If you don't want to support this show, that's okay. Go find another podcast to support. Um, if you don't want to buy Mickey's book, that's okay. Go find another book to support. Support your small publishers um, of anything and any kind. And while you're at it, maybe send Claire an email. You'll contact her via the Sarah Records page and just say thank you for everything she did. Uh, she got out of the biz to become a chartered accountant where she is no doubt earning much more money than she did at Sarah. And similarly, Mickey says in her book that uh, when um, Lush broke up and she learned how to become a sub-editor, she found she was being paid twice as much for half as much work. I want to thank my son, um, Noel, for the great theme music. Uh, Thanks to uh, my old schoolmates, Richard and Jenny, who you hear at the front and the back of this particular episode. Greg, for his help with the logos. The next episode will be James Brown and Mark Hodkinson. And I'm really looking forward to that because I've done the interview and that one's great as well. Take care out there and be creative. And if you can't be creative, please support someone who is. Cheers. Do you want to buy a fanzine?